This is a Media Lab podcast. Whoa, Dave, what is, why are you so out of breath? I brought it. I got it. I got it just in time. You brought what? What is in your bag that you have here? I got, it's, it's 100,000 Deutschmarks. Deutschmarks. 100,000 of them. Where, where did you, where did you get Deutschmarks? That doesn't even exist anymore. I, I thought, I thought we needed it for the machine. You, you, you texted me. Dave. Dave, these are Bitcoin tokens. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the, machine. the Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And my name is uh, David. And I'm the Machine. A podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, we're going to be watching the film Run, Lola, Run. I guess I should have put on my best German accent, and I think it's Lola Rent. Lola Rent. Lola Rent. That sounds more Scottish that you just did there, but okay. Um, Dave, what is your history with this film? Uh, this was definitely one of my favorite movies after I discovered it. I did own it on likely digital video disc. I do not have the said copy anymore, so I don't know what happened to that. And I'm pretty sure I can safely say that at least in the first five or six years of owning that uh, digital video disc, I watched this movie often, uh, but I cannot comfortably say that I remember much of it now. I don't want to belabor this point, but I do like to constantly bring it up that I am younger than you are. So this movie would have come out when you were what? In your uh, mid-20s? Not no. mid-20s, but young 20s. Yeah. So were you in university, out of university when this came out? Well, I dropped out. <laughs> so yeah, I was yeah. of university age, you prick. I was around <laughs> the university, Kyle, okay? Thanks for bringing that up. Nah, hashtag not bitter, as the kids say these days. I hashtagged it. I would have been t- uh, 21. I would have been 21 okay. uh, solar years old in the solar calendar. Well, I only I only bring this up because while this movie came out when I was technically in high school, I did not watch this movie until I was in university. And this became very much like, I don't know, part of the canon of university life. I watched this a bunch of times. It was like this movie, weirdly, Reservoir Dogs. Um, and then, uh, there's another one that I'm, I'm totally blanking on. Anyways, like the big common, like 
university movies where you get get the poster and put it up on your wall, that sort of thing. Like this was one of those films. So I probably watched this at least eight or nine times throughout the like three and a half years ish that I was there. And then I know I've seen it at least one time since then, but probably not in the last decade. I'm going to guess probably not in the last decade. If people saw us on the street, they would not realize how similar we were, Kyle. The, the premise of this podcast was supposed to be that we don't do anything the same. Uh, if we keep doing this, we, I'm going to start we sounding have often, like it. When we're, we're at a coffee shop, we're often confused for brothers. And I, I know that there's a bit of a similarity there. but uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, the clothing. You know, we mm-hmm. dress very similar. You know, yeah, I like right. I like to wear shirts with the cap, and you also wear shirts when we meet. So often I wear shoes. <laughs> and uh, here's my question, though, and I I kind of kind of know the answer. This was obviously not your first like quote unquote non English film or foreign film, no. but was this like one of your first like German films that you had watched? Mm, that's very specific. Sure, I, I mean I couldn't name you a German film. Uh, the only other one I actually can think of off the top of my head is In the Lives of Others, which is a great little film. Speaking uh, thriller. of which, check out our Patreon page. It's mentioned. Uh, <laughs> oh, there, there we go. We'll get to that. We'll get to that, Dave. Das Boot, maybe? Oh, Das Boot. Yeah, that'd probably be the other one. Um, but I, I can actually recall the very first... There was two non-English films that I watched as I was getting into film. One was Life is Beautiful, the Italian film uh, with... Um, Berto, uh, Roberto, Roberto Benigni. Benigni. Yeah, that was my Italian and then accent. I, was probably gonna I actually some shit. went to the theater. This is how much of a nerd I was. Went to the theater to watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, but that's everybody in grade 12. did. I did. I was angry. I left angry. Yeah, I know. You don't like <laughs> Chow Yun-Fat and like ancient China. No, I love Chow Yun-Fat, but he, sh- yeah, he shouldn't have made a, a floating ballet, balletic martial arts movie. He's better than that. Hey, it is a beautiful film and I cried. Yeah, so. angrily. Yeah, I, you know, and I think there's a cultural and uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, both my being not white. I don't know if you can tell mm-hmm. that over the uh, podcast audio uh, and as well being in Toronto where um, said, you know, international films were more available. Not necessarily, they weren't, you know, in a blockbuster or a jumbo video, but but there were ways, right. Kyle, if you knew all about uh, the different <laughs> you markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could get them, yeah. Yeah, I really did not get into that a lot until... Into, into university, my parents are one of those people who have straight up said, like, we don't want to read a movie and we're not going to get a movie that we have to read subtitles, which is like, whatever, fine. But I just happen to like those types of things uh, every so often as uh, I go through Akira Kurosawa, although it's been like six weeks since the last time I watched one. This is why I read gooder than you. All right, Dave, why don't we do this? Uh, it's going to be fun to kind of get back into this and and see if this holds up after a bunch of years having not seen it. So I'll go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking about Run, Lola, Run. Hi, everyone. Just Kyle here again to thank some of the people that make this show continue to go. You know, I I just was watching Run, Lola, Run, and it made me feel like short of breath. And then I just realized it's it's not the movie. It's just that I'm extremely, extremely out of shape. But that's beside the point. Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. 
This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by World on Fire, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. World on Fire is a new five-part series that takes you to the front lines of -of out-of-control wildfires in Canada, Australia, and California. Recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, hosts Adrian Lamb and Mike Flanagan look at what it takes to find hope in the midst of fear and destruction and how communities affected by wildfires rebuild. The series examines the high costs that wildfires cause to people's health, homes, and communities. Find World on Fire on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash worldonfire. This week, we're also brought to you by ATB. And today, I want to talk to you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month, plus bonus episodes, the future of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found, and connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. Here's what's hilarious, Dave, is that even though I just told you uh, a mere hour and 20 minutes ago that I watched this a bunch of times in university, it was like I was watching this like, I don't know if I remember this part, but then I could like I knew what was coming up. It was like this weird (laughs) juxtaposition of like, I don't really remember this and then kind of remembering at the same time. Yes, I felt that exactly. I I walked into the couch we were sitting on together in front of the the screen uh, thinking that i remembered how this movie was going to go and then Mm -hmm. as the first sequence started i i started yeah i was like making a face because like you know i remember the skeleton of it but i don't remember enough the weird thing about it is that for some reason I thought the movie was about the same story from three different perspectives, Ah. and that's really not what it is. It's the same story told three times, but from her getting down the stairs at quicker or faster, or sorry, slower or faster. So anyways, we'll get into all that (laughs) here in a moment. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it wasn't really the same story. Was it, Kyle? Was it? Was it? Let me push this button here, see what the, the machine wants us to talk about. So Run Lola Run was released in Germany on August 28th, 1998, but was released in North America on June 18th, 1999. So we would not have been able to see it unless we flew to Germany until June 18th of 1999. The other major release that week was The General's Daughter, written by Simon West, directed by Christopher Bertolini, starring John Travolta, Madeline Stowe, and James Cromwell. All I kept thinking was Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. I've never seen well, it. That's why. But I, I knew Travolta was in it. There's a tickly tickle of the brain. Is 99 already? He's, he's lost his reputation. Is he already a, a public Scientologist? No. Oh, well, he was a Scientologist for years before that. But I mean, he would have had his career resurgence from Face um, Off Pulp Fiction. Uh, oh, Face Off would have happened. Yeah. Face Off would have happened. And then this is him g- g- trying to come back again. Take um, his face. Oh, my unpopular opinion is that 
you have somebody like um, Nicholas Cage, right? Polarizing, but in my opinion, still makes like one like pretty solid film for like every four films he's in. Director Volter is in like one good film for every 25 movies he's in, in my opinion. Like it takes a while from like, okay, fine. Finally, a good performance again. By the way, uh, sympathy to him because his wife just passed away. So I don't want to rag on him too much. Eh. Run the Run is currently rated 7.6 on IMDb, 77 on Metacritic. And if you go over to Rotten Tomatoes, based on 82 critics, it is at 93%. Based on 144,147 users, it's at 90%. So pretty close, up in the 90s for both of them. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it on Google Play or YouTube. And in Canada, you can stream it for free on the CTV app. You just have to watch commercials every 20 minutes. Not that I would know, but hey, you could do that if you wanted to. Thanks for letting me in on that before I (laughs) presumably paid for it. I don't mind paying money for this one. So yeah, let's move on. Its budget was... In American dollars, $1.75 million. It opened to $123,000, but would go on to make $7 million uh, worldwide. No breakdown domestically and internationally, uh, apparently. And so that brings it up to $11.2 million due to inflation. So this was a pretty big hit for these German filmmakers. Isn't it funny how it's so relative as a percentage? Because that wouldn't even scratch yeah. the surface in America. Oh, no. But then how many movies are you going to make for like under $2 million probably, in America? Probably the ones that should be made, Kyle. True enough. I mean, have we talked about it yet? Yes, we've talked about Runaway Bride already. Oh, fuck. So, I mean, when you make that movie for $60 million, and you're like, why? why? Why is this costing $60 million to make? Anyways, so its plot description from IMDb is, After a botched money delivery, Lola has 20 minutes to come up with 100,000 Deutschmarks. That's how much I cost. It stars Franca Potenta as Lola, Moritz, uh, bl- oh God, Blybtrue as Manny, and Herbert Nope as Vater or Lola's dad. As we mentioned last week, and I don't think we really got into a great description of it, we do have a Patreon, so you could actually go and uh, donate money to the cause. Uh, it, it, as Dave just mentioned, it does cost money to rent a lot of these films uh, to see, so it helps defray the costs of uh, keeping up with all these movies the machine forces us to watch. It used to have it so that it was like a little... Um, how did you describe it before we started recording, Dave? A um, a viewing receptacle to uh, to watch films from, from its chest. But now we have to do it out of our own pocket. Yeah. Maybe call them screens. Screens. Uh, but there's some cool things over there. One of the cool things is that Dave now writes up a little kind of a blog post about the actors that are in the this movie uh, that you can go and read. And it's free for the first week and then goes behind uh, the paywall afterwards. So definitely anyone can go and uh, enjoy what he's written over there. And if you want to keep up with everything that we're talking about, you can help us along over there. Uh, more info on that over the next few weeks. Any big things that uh, you wanted to bring up from your research? Uh, no, I mean, we could talk about culture bias because there's not a lot of information on German actors on American Wikipedia. Odd, odd. Yeah, it's weird. You know, it's kind of like, it's like if you had asked me theoretically about whether I'd seen German films prior to this yeah. one and I was unable to... Uh, Here's the thing. and. I know a thousand percent you don't want me to talk about this, but I'm going to anyways. But definitely in university, when you see this movie, for me at least, you have the two lead actors, you know, Lola and Manny. 
And as a closeted bisexual at the time, boy, was this a great movie for me to watch because it was like the entire movie was just like eye candy for me to kind of like view. And uh, this whole this movie basically reveals uh, kinks and stuff that you never knew would have been a thing <laughs> for a small town Albertan boy. Totally but that's as much that. as I need to go <laughs> go into uh, from, from that. Yeah, then we'll talk a little bit about the let's call it the cultural sensitivities of Europe versus the, oh, the sure. prudish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, puritanical north american world but i do remember distinctly i don't really celebrity crush too much so the phrase would be like i fell in love with but you know franco portente mm. is is awesome yeah she's great but those little um you know lovebird sequences very reminiscent of french films kind of like a luc besson yeah. you know with the with the colors you know, basically all they need to be doing is smoking the cigarettes, smoking cigarettes and having existential yeah. conversations you know kid ones right like university level you know yeah what, what if? exactly we're so wise now kyle we would never get into that kind of those moments were great and i loved how uh they slowed down some of the pace because this well this i think too i think maybe that is part of it it's like franco patente i kind of kept up with because she was in the born movies oh born movies thank yeah. you yeah yeah she was in the born movies and so there was other stuff that i eventually saw her in i don't know if i've seen the other actors in anything else P- potentially i might have but i just don't remember them you'd have to watch a lot of german media because mm-hmm. that's the credits that i found well the last thing i'll say this was written and directed by tom tickfer uh who was born may 23rd 1965 this is very much in the beginning of his career he had made some shorts and um, a couple other movies the only one i will mention is because i've been practicing how to say this the other movie he made was winterschlafe i don't know what that translates to but it's fun to say isn't it he is this weird interesting figure i am a kind of a big fan of tom tickfer because he's this quadruple threat. Uh, he's a writer, director, producer, and he composes for a lot of his films as well. So he kind of does all four of those things. I would say that for people listening to this, probably the two things that you're most likely, as far as movies go, Cloud Atlas, and then the Tom Hanks film, A Hologram for the King. Those are the two maybe that you have checked out. Uh, Cloud Atlas, he co-directed with the Wachowskis, but he was definitely involved with it. And then jumped on to helping them with Sense8, where he directed some of the episodes, as well as scored the entire series, as far as I know. And then for the last three years, he's been doing the German TV show Babylon Berlin, which again, he has written, directed, and composed the music, I think, for every episode. But all those seasons are up on Netflix, if you want to watch Babylon Berlin. Oh, that Babylon Berlin is on Netflix. It is on Netflix, yeah. Probably will not watch it, but uh, I feel like there's a lot of German content because there's that show Dark as well that is getting rave reviews that is also from Germany and it's yeah it's basically adult Stranger Things is what it is is what I've been told. My friend told me I have to watch it, but I I look at the picture and it looks yeah it looks dark. I don't know if I can watch it. Well, my my friends too, and I'm, I told them it's like I'm at this age right now where the last thing that I want to do before going to bed is be in an existential crisis. And it's like, I just don't want to do it. <laughs> We're already in an apocalypse. Like, I don't yeah. need more. I don't need... <laughs> yeah, I don't need more of it. Yeah. It's... Let me have fun. Let me watch my fun stuff right? and then I'll... Tickle me, right? Elmo, no. Let's move on. Don't ever speak again. It makes you less pretty. All right, so Dave, let's jump into it then. After having taken a break from watching this film, what, what stood out to you from watching it now as a plus 40 man uh fuck you Kyle. no uh as i mentioned the word frenetic i i was a little it took me a little while to get into a the animation like mm. i know it's super low budge and everything 
it flows better with how the things piece together by the end. But you know, the first cutscene, like the intro, I don't understand the goth clock. Like there, there's just a lot of sort of tonal things that are happening that it was hard to to figure out where I was. I think I would have liked the music more in '99 because I was really into yeah. the electronic music world. Uh, but it, it it is interesting how kind of dated it sounds. It feels like a now. little bit right. Um, yeah, yeah. I offended uh, a neighbor here because I made the assumption that all Calgarians only listen to country music. Right. <laughs> and apparently Calgary is like the EDM capital of Canada. And like, Is that true? I, I have no idea. I, I don't know. And I'm like, I, I don't even know there's clubs here. Uh, not that I go to them anymore, but, but apparently there's a big EDM culture in Calgary. And I thought uh, that doesn't make any sense because everybody drives pickup trucks. Who's the racist now? I want, now? now I want to hear like country EDM mashups. I guarantee you that exists. I mean, if Little Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus can hit a hit, that's song. true. Yeah. So uh, there was that, and then um, you know, you know what's uh, good about this film is that even knowing that it was going to break apart and retell the story, I thought it was still exciting and interesting mm-hmm. every time those intersections happen. There's a couple of weird visual things that, I mean, I love the Polaroid idea, but there, you know, when they would change suddenly into like a handicam versus uh, a film thing, I don't know if that was budgetary because it didn't feel like there was a reason why they would break apart like that. But uh, when you say handicam, what do you mean? Well, they would have a, presumably a film camera to do all the standard shots. And then for example, the one that stands like, uh, when the father and his mistress are having an interchange, that's done on yeah, like a camcorder. Like it is very apparent that that was filmed on some sort of like, like a little low rent mini DV camera. Right. It's like, it's kind of pixelated. It's not. Yeah. I, I don't know what the, why the reasoning was behind that. I mean, doing a little background research about how, uh, what's his, what's your, uh, fanboy guy's name? T- Tom Tickfer. Tom. You know, apparently he didn't get into film school and, uh, you know, kind of uh, pulled himself up by the bootstraps and was given the advice to just shoot everything around him. So there you get that sort of student film energy in this movie, but it is weird. It almost comes off like they shot B-roll to fill in the plot afterwards, except that it can't have been the case. For example, like the the father and the mistress is such a crucial piece Moment, of information yeah. throughout you know, all timelines. So there's some intent with that, which is weird. And then, you know, having the romantic things done almost in a mono, monochromatic, you know, red light. Right. It, there's some jarring things with the energy of the whole, I know it's called Run Lola Run, but my God, it felt like I was sweating, which is not a bad thing, but it's, the I'm going to say crazy. like, Franca Patenta like must have like great cardio. Great cardio. Like if she's like, like she's not even like jogging, she's like running full tilt, like boom, 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 boom. Uh, almost like that Tom Cruise run, like that, like super intense, like she actually looks like she's running, whereas a lot of people don't. Yeah, no, it's true, it's true. I had this a very similar, I guess, response to this, which is like, oh, I don't remember the opening being so weird. Like again, I did some research too while we were watching, and apparently, there's a lot of allusions to Vertigo in this in this movie. The most obvious, which apparently I did not pick up on, but when she goes to the casino in the third story. There's a painting in the back that is actually Kim Novak from Vertigo. That is what that painting is. Where the woman's turned away from the... the Correct. So that's the back of Kim Novak's head from the film Vertigo. And you know what? The way the camera panned it made it seem like that was going to be an important piece. Right. Yeah, but but it doesn't. And I was like, nothing nothing happened. She didn't turn Uh, around. But 
but but they like they similarly in that movie there's a lot of spirals that happen so whether it's the staircase which she runs down or when he's in the phone booth when Manny's in the phone booth there's just a weird thing in the background that's spinning and uh, so there's a bunch of things that get brought in from that movie that he was inspired by um, there's also another movie that I can't recall what it was called but it came out in the 80s anyways that it's not a direct adaptation from but like borrows very heavily from so definitely he was using a bunch of his own inspirations to to create this um but like i said i think it does feel like it's an it's a step above a student film but barely (laughs) and i mean that in the best kind of way i don't mean that as like a negative necessarily but there's some things that now as a you know mid-30s late 30s i guess now guy it's just like oh there's things that are like peeling around the edges i noticed like those scenes with the mistress and how some of the colors are a little bit too oversaturated and that sort of thing where it's like oh interesting like if he had like another million he could probably like iron some of this stuff out and like made this probably the way that he had visualized but at the same time i kind of like the grittiness of it i like seeing this version of i don't know if it's there in berlin but this version of germany at least to be like okay so seeing what the 90s might have sort of felt like over in Germany, at least from a North American perspective. That's all I can see is from this movie. But there's a little bit more like the shocking red hair and uh, the the way that they're dressing and, and that sort of thing, which would have been, I don't know, pretty provocative, I would say, depending on what city or town I guess you grew up in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the rave culture was like in Rocky Mountain House, but... uh, (laughs) It was zero. When I met Helen, uh, she had, like, short red hair. Um, Shut up. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I was wearing... (laughs) Yeah, we'll find pictures, but... uh, Yeah, I was just coming out of the rave scene, and she was uh, having fun at them. Straight and sort of, like, no drugs, but that's just who she is. Stay at all night and dance. It's interesting, you know, it's interesting, I'm just thinking, comparing it to the British films we've watched so much, and this idea of kind of the avant-garde neo-culture in Berlin and Germany, and how they're always depicted, I think, as, if not risk-takers, at least not prudish, or as mm-hmm. even, like, what was that piece of crap we watched, Still Crazy? I mean, that's supposed to yeah. be this, like, edgy rock world, right. and it comes off like, like a fucking retirement home movie, right? It's it, like everything from the tone, the palette, how they speak, it's, there's no, there's nothing in it. Um, and here we have a young German director, um, and it feels like it. It, it, there's a youth to it, there's, uh, there's an energy. Well, I, not that I want to harp too much on this, it's just that there feels like there's a bit of a sexual liberation to this movie. And I think that is part of the Germanness of it. I mean, even growing up, like that was the prevailing things. Like you hear about like these German sex clubs and they're all like scandalous and stuff like that. Never been to one. I have no idea what they're actually like. So I'm, I'm really speaking at a turn here, but here it's like the idea of like femininity is really like Lola is not really feminine in the classic, like Western standards, but it's still, I don't know for me, attractive and like uh, engaging to watch. And I want to see her fulfill her like 20 minute run and dash, even if I'm not so fond of like the boyfriend that she has necessarily, because he seems to be wrapped up in some weird gangster stuff. That's like, Oh, you deserve better than this. But well, that's my favorite counterculture part to America is that they don't try to make many like a, a likable person. He's such a piece of shit. And you don't have to question why they're together because it has, yeah, it, it has nothing to do with the plot. The plot is, there's this uh, strong-willed woman who's going to stop at nothing, including building, you know, this butterfly effect thing where she's going to try different options. 
uh, to save his life. And the whole story gets to revolve around her in this moment. It's not even, I don't think, meant to be a sort of statement on uh, women and culture, et cetera. It's mm-hmm. just assumed almost. Um, and I love too, like, yeah, she's sprinting. She's not trying to look debonair or like frail. She's like a beautiful woman who actually looks like a real human woman that you'll meet on the street. You know, it was the most exciting thing for Bourne, the first one, was that she was the leading lady. And I was so right. excited because here you have Matt Damon and he meets like a real person <laughs> and they go right, on this right. adventure and it doesn't have to be someone, you know, with a 20 inch waist and plastic boobs and probably 18. It's like, and and you don't have to vomit after watching the movie because the camera's shaking so much. I was, well, yeah, it was pre-Paul Greengrass, so we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll bag on that asshole later. Uh, I mean, I mean, this is probably an unfair comparison, but it actually kind of reminds me of, I believe, the Bryce Dallas Howard character in Jurassic World, if you've actually seen that movie. No. Where in heels, she outruns a T-Rex. Good. And it's like, uh, I don't understand how this is working. <laughs> Where, whereas in this movie, no, like she's like, she's booking it. And um, I believe everything that's happening in the movie, even if all around it, it's ridiculous. Uh, I, I do want to touch on a little bit about those moments of photographs, because that's one of the cool things. And again, I bet you anything, if there had been more of a budget, he would have wanted to actually film those Flights of Fancy, but who knows? But the idea being like when she bumps into certain people on her journeys, then we get these little uh, fractals pol- fractals of like uh, Polaroids going on. So you can kind of see what happens later on in their life. Uh, and sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's negative. Sometimes it's like in the middle, like there's <laughs> it just is a, an existence. Why, why do you think there was a focus on that? Well, I mean, I think the whole movie revolves around. I, I hate that we're going to use butterfly effect and all I'm thinking is Ashton Kutcher, but what I love about it is not even the positive, uh, how uncompromising the ideas of what these people's lives could, should, will be like. Even the first one's so jarring with the the angry, uh, shitty woman losing her baby and stealing another one. Like it's you know, stealing another baby. You're just I like, know, what yeah. the fuck just happened? And it, it snaps you uh, out of the one fantasy into something that is still fantastical, but becomes almost too real and I, I don't know what it'd be like as a german audience whether that would have been shocking or just expected um I, like oh yeah old lady stealing babies yeah we've seen well, that I, I mean not that but I, I think one of the things that's more shocking for an american audience is that someone would have the uh bravado to just depict it right i mean right. the the i can't remember which guy uh, the bicyclist guy dying of a heroin overdose or whatever it was yeah uh, you know that's not something other than requiem for a dream that people <laughs> That people are like so easily, they don't just throw that into a fun sort of a romantic thriller. They're they're so random. The uh, hilarious uh, uh, BDSM moment uh, with the bank tellers. Right. I mean, it's, it's a great joke, but it's also something that's not going to be uh, so openly depicted in an American, particularly in '99. That's uh, that's some big stuff. Uh, and I loved yeah. it. Uh, I don't know when Memento came out, but I feel like. I think it was the next year after this. Yeah, there's just mistaken. this feeling too I have as a photographer about Polaroids. Um, like just visually, it there's photography can be such a great uh, narrative building device. Uh, I mean, you could make the argument film is uh, interlinked that way with the different sense of time, but I love that. I guess the one thing is like there's times where there's like a positive outcome, and then based on her next run through, it turns into a negative outcome. I think really what it's 
trying to delve into is like those half seconds, those fractions of time where we have to make choices really can have these ripples through other people's lives that we never, ever know about. I don't know how much you prescribe to like the multiverse theory. Well, there's more than one Spider-Man. We saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much you prescribe to the Spider-Verse theory, but uh, no, uh, but it's, it's that kind of thing, right? Where they're like every choice you make splinters a world. And now there's these millions upon billions upon trillions of alternate worlds that are out there because of little mini choices that people did or did not make. And I actually love that idea of being able to harness that power to be able to, like, hey, if I had made this choice, what would have happened? But then, of course, like everyone else would have had to make the same choice. And then you get into this weird paradox of that not really working properly. But in this one, it's like she runs on the stairs and the next time she goes down like two seconds slower. And the next one, she's like two seconds quicker. And how much of a difference that actually makes in the trajectory of her story. Yeah, I, and of other people's stories too. I just think it's fascinating just to kind of look at that and talk about that outside of the film. I I think what makes this movie work for essentially a time travel movie is that it's self-aware enough that uh, it shows her fate as well. Whereas most time mm-hmm. travel movies have a protagonist that's got this God-given you know ability to make things better. I'm also here to make the world better. Just wait for my ultimate plan. She and Manny die a lot, and people around them are constantly dying. I mean, the the top winning timeline has her shitty dad and his friend uh, die, Again, and yeah, that's yeah. the good one, right? So, you know, I, I think uncompromising is a fascinating thing. I recently, on an insomniac night, uh, was on Google and learned about white holes. Have you heard about white holes? No, sounds racist, but I don't know. Uh, white holes are the anus. No, so uh, what it is is the uh, mathematical sort of counterpoint of black holes. So when the sort whole uh, quantum black hole theory, and I I don't understand any of it really. I mean, I read uh, brief history of time. I have no recollection other than he had pictures in it. And so uh, apparently, in order for some of the advanced math to work for a black hole, which is essentially you know this tunnel into apparent nothingness, there are these white hole events that uh, are sort of unvis like uh, you can't see them because they're pure energy in the beginning of something and one of the things that stuck with me at the end of uh, trying to fall asleep reading things i don't understand is this concept that every time the energy from a white hole goes and ends in a black hole the end of that black hole is essentially another white hole event hmm. and so it's not a multiverse the way you know like spider-man would be where we're all kind of like the one what a shitty movie but jet lee who i used to <laughs> Love, yeah. but the one is ridiculous. You know, he's like trying to kill all his other selves to gain the super like Highlander shit. So I, I don't think they mean in the parallel sense, but this concept that these things are cyclical uh, are fascinating. And then the other stuff, you know, determinism, fatalism, yeah, butterfly effect. Well, I think what well, the- I think it even gets into questioning things of like um, uh, free will versus like intelligent design, like someone who's like moving the chess pieces around. Like, yeah, this movie is very much in like, hey, we have the opportunity to change things if we want to. Well, and you know what's interesting? I, I think there's a nuance. I don't know if this is intended, but I think one of the best parts of the storytelling is that she doesn't retain all of the experience from the first, but she keeps some of the pieces. So she's not aware, like in some, like uh, that new Netflix show with, uh, Natasha, whatever her name is, from Orange and New Black. And uh, that movie's pretty good. And I think similarly inspired by Run Lola Run and, and, you know, yeah, more Run Lola Run than Rashomon. And so 
she keeps having to relive the same moment, Groundhog Day style, and she's aware of each death uh, and it's driving her crazy, but she keeps trying different things. I guess is Palm Springs about that? Anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But Roland Laurent, it's a similar sort of cyclical thing. She's not consciously reliving each moment, but she has retained little pieces. I think that's a fascinating tell that you can't just relive it, right? It's got to be uh, all these different permutations. So I don't know if it's so much that you have this choice because she has to die or Manny's got to die each time. I think it's more, for me, a reflection that we just have to choose our best options and, and see what happens. Well, I guess the other thing is uh, there are some theorists out there that she is actually controlling the time jumps where she is actually physically able to turn back the clock just based on like her voiceover and the screaming is able to somehow like control what's going on around her to a degree. So is there a bit of like, I don't know, paranormal superhero vibe to this thing that you pick up on? Or is that just like wishful thinking? No, no, I don't know. Uh, Definitely is uh, something. I mean, the screaming thing is fucking weird. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's something to be said about imagining scenarios, uh, whether any of it actually happens at all. And she's just running through the possibilities of what will happen if this happens. And, uh, you know, if they were going to go that way, maybe at the end of the movie, she's still standing there on the call and just about to hang up the phone. And you have to figure out whether she decides to go one way or the other. Is it just supposed to take her out of reality so that the story can live on its own instead of us getting trapped in this discussion of whether we can change our own fates like the only way she can change her fate is that she can scream at a roulette table and uh, win a hundred thousand deutschmarks hey yeah. if in two minutes i could walk in and walk out with a hundred thousand dollars i mean i would scream at the table too. Just gonna, i'm just imagining you sitting there screaming and losing and everybody's like what the fuck is wrong what the fuck are you doing it comes here every week <laughs> get out <laughs> <laughs> this is like the 50th time you've been here Kyle Marshall, and it's just not going to happen. Uh, by the way, before we get too far, it's Russian Doll. There's the Netflix show with uh, Natasha Lyonne. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing I picked up on, I don't know if you ever prescribe to color theory at all, but I'm a big fan of this, that sometimes directors or usually a lot of times art directors um, and production designers will put colors to mean certain things into the frame. And here's certainly the color red shows up a whole bunch of times. Not just with her hair, but it's like, uh, that's the color of the phone that she's talking on. That's the color of the room that they're laying in. That's the color of the bag that she's running with. I don't know if that means anything to you. Is it just red as a cool, vibrant color or is there something else to that? It's funny you should ask because I I was algorithmized by YouTube. Uh, uh, so I just saw this thing about, I guess, these linguistic researchers were doing color theory analysis, but across cultures. And what they found was there's a pattern in which uh, human parlance, human language, develops terms for colors. And what's fascinating is that every culture starts with uh, essentially white and black or light and dark and red. So the first color that Mm -hmm. typically uh, gets a name of its own sort of uh, nomenclature, if you will, is the color red. And whether that's because, you know, red, blood, death, I don't know what it is, there's a primal level where that becomes an important enough color. It, this became a bit of a vehicle for racists to suggest that uh, so-called lesser cultures were colorblind, stupid, you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. 
But um, as the research uh, developed, and the original researchers were trying not to be racist, as they delved more into the sociological stuff, they found that these uh, tribes and uh, newer uh, generational cultures, it's not that they didn't have words to describe uh, other colors, it's that they were associated with objects or other parts of their more, let's call it, uh, yeah, simplified languages, because they didn't have a need yet to differentiate you know, grass from the color green. And the other thing that's interesting about that study is that they all typically develop along the same color spectrum, with blue being the last primary color that takes a name, and then there's a subsequent sort of, you know, like, I mean, who can name colors anymore? It's, you go to a paint store and nothing makes sense, right? Like, <laughs> you invent shit. It's, well, they're yeah. numbers, right? As you know, you're a computer. Well, guy. I think, I don't know if this is what you're going to eventually drive at, but that's like the push for the color pink in North America. Like we're more able to see pink as a color where a lot of other cultures, that's just a version of red. They don't need another word to call <laughs> that a, a different color. I just think that's really interesting. Uh, as an English major, the, one of the biggest things, if you start to read early English lit, like old English lit, a lot of that is like Arthurian legends and and that type of thing. They use this all the time. They basically substitute colors to just be feelings that you should be feeling. And, yes. the, and one of the biggest ones is the color green. Green in our in culture now is like, I don't know, it's, it, you know, it's green. I wear a green shirt. Like not, we don't have any close ties to that. But back then it always represented evil. So like the evil king would be wearing green or the green knight in Arthurian legend was this evil entity that they had to go and vanquish. The dragon might be green. So it's interesting how those colors have changed over time, but uh, can still be used to to be sub to subvert different meanings and stuff like that. Going back back to the film uh, and with this sort of in my head, it's hard always as we are learning in reflection about uh, deciding what the effect and what the intent was. So did the director have an intent to use red as, right, blood, warning, stop? Or um, was it because of the budget, uh, maybe an influence of an old movie that he saw that he, right, thought that uh, having the sexy European cigarette smoking couple scene in bed had to be a red light thing? I, I don't know, right? Uh, I personally didn't get a thematic impact mm -hmm. from the use of color. There are so many weird moments uh, where he seems to be wanting to use different, uh, like different mediums, different expressions, but I don't think they work that well uh, to establish a tone. I, I, I do agree. I mean, not to ruin the movie that we may or may not be talking about, but The Sixth Sense does this, right? Where every time there's a red object, it is kind of in reference to, hey, he's a ghost. Like, it's fucking like, ruined it's, it for me. I haven't watched I that movie in like 20 years, Kyle, and now all I'm going to be doing is looking for colors. Thanks a lot. Looking for colors. He does use it throughout that movie. Damn it. Um, I just wanted to touch on a few things here. First off, hey, do you remember phone cards yeah. that you could use yes. in like phone booths? Yes. I do too. It's like, boy, is that date this movie because no well, one would have to. Most of the cities, except for the very major course, have gotten rid of payphones entirely. Calgary ripped them mm -hmm. all out. I don't think there's any functioning payphones anymore. I, the one on Stephen Avenue, I have photographs of it at least installed, and I have now have photographs. They've been literally physically torn out, never mind being functional. Mm -hmm. But phone cards are important. If you had to make an out-of-city call, you needed a phone call. You can't carry that many quarters. Whenever, yeah, back then when I went on when I went traveling, because I went down to the United States for um, a few months um, in my first and second year of university. It was a two-month stint at the summer camp. 
and they had a payphone. That was the only phone that they had. They had like these banks of like four or five payphones. And so my mom and dad would load up a phone card. And when I went down there, I just insert it, call them up, and they were like, yes, like, blah, blah, blah. They'd connect well, us and everything would collect work fine. calls. Nobody does that anymore. And yeah. you used to you did a cheat where they would ask you what your name is, and you just quickly spit out a message. And then, yeah, yeah. have you ever done that? And it's like, I'm here, I'm blah, blah, blah. And they're like, will you receive a call from? And then they give the message. I'm, I'm here, like, nope. and come and bring yeah, up. You just like, hang up, yeah. nobody pays any money. Moral gray areas. I, my other note I wrote down, though, like that's on that same topic, is that this whole, this whole premise of the movie would never have happened had they had cell phones. Of course. Because like, they just text each other. It's like, I'm here, I'm almost there. Like, just wait and... Although with the character of Manny, who knows? That guy is such a head case. I mean, there's nothing, yeah. there's no decision that he made that came down to sanity. That dude was uh, neurotic. It's bad news. I hope she she <laughs> learns that and moves on in this fictional world. Take that, take that hundred thousand dollars for yourself, and you move on. What did you think of the uh, the giving the guy the gun scene? I mean, I don't buy it, but first of all, not really, at least. Yeah, it's I mean, weird in today's context where we have so much cynicism that you immediately think this homeless guy's going to shoot him, take both. Yeah, that's right. It's like, he's going to shoot him. I'm sure that's what I thought the very first time I watched the movie, but yeah, I don't, <laughs> I just don't know if I just go behind my guns off to anyone, especially when he knows you have $100,000. It's like, okay, now give it back to me, idiot. Yeah. Like, at least unload it. Maybe it was, maybe it had no bullets. In the first place, who knows? It is Manny. He's not a smart, not a smart man. So this movie starts off with two little inscriptions. And I think it's the one by T.S. Eliot, although I don't remember anymore. But I loved it because it was like, after the game is before the game. And I just wanted to quickly talk about how that is talking about this movie or how you think it works into this movie. Because I've been trying to figure this out, which is at least the way that I interpret that is that if you are like, I'm using game as a, as a sports metaphor, so maybe it's not. But as a sports metaphor, I like that idea of like, you know, after the game ends, you were just playing the game, but now the preparation for the next one starts. So you have to start preparing yourself for that next battle, the next challenge. Having just also watched the Netflix series, um, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, it's like that was him to a T. It's like, okay, we finished this game. It's now preparing for the next game. There was no off for him during like playing basketball. I guess my question is, how does that relate to this movie? So, on another YouTube hole I was in. <laughs> Jeez, all you're doing is watching YouTube. For uh, someone who hates YouTube, you certainly spend a lot of time oh, on it. I don't it. hate it anymore. It's a primary app now in my life. Um, <laughs> I watched a TED Talk with Simon Sinek. And I mean, oh, yeah. he's a, <clears throat> apparently quite a controversial guy. He's one, you know, the problem with mansplaining is uh, you pick a side and you have to kind of just say that you know everything. But he, he I was watching this thing about, uh, I think the, overall thing was you know how and why the american culture collapsed etc i mean go figure that's the one i would pick right kyle uh, you know, right that seems not up your alley at all to this point he's talking about uh this subject through this idea of game theory which i've heard the term but i don't uh right. care usually I, I i read a book on game theory a long time ago uh, i don't anyways. even know what it really means uh but he uh, brought the distinction which i thought was fascinating uh the difference between finite and infinite games a finite mm -hmm. and infinite, F finite and infinite, uh, finite and infinite. Yes. Why do you pronounce them differently, Kyle? You're an English major. Give me the etymology. Why do you pronounce wind and wind differently? You just do. They mean different words, but infinite and finite are related because they're inversions. Yeah. No, okay. So to this uh, comment, it's interesting. You know, his definition of the finite game is there are a set number of unknown players. There's a set number of known rules. There's a beginning. There's an end. There's a victor, a loser, etc. And so, like, uh, bring up Michael Jordan. 
when he talks about the context of uh, him as a basketball player, and if you read some of stories about his personality around basketball, sure. he's he's insane. Uh, so when it comes to basketball, yeah, it's a succession of finite games. Um, what drives him to win all of them is obviously a very complex thing. But I suspect that this quote, without being directly related to this uh, distinction from this one TED Talk I watched, might refer more to this infinite game idea where there's unknown players, unknown thing. And he says the point of those conceptual infinite games is not to win or lose, but to be self-sustaining so the game continues to play out. And the only idea of winning and losing is if one or several of the sides give up of their own accord. They run out of steam, interest, money. So I, uh, I don't know. In that context, I think the quote has relevance. In the first context of a finite game, it doesn't make any sense at all because hmm. this movie... I mean, it's it's reliving and replaying the same moment over and over again. It it it, it goes too abstract, I think, to be encapsulated by a a two two one line uh, yeah. I don't know, uh, two point quote. I think the T. S. Eliot was the first one, the longer quote, and this one. Oh, I'm pretty sure right. it, was, it looked like a German name, but I didn't recognize Could it. Could be. Yeah. Well. I guess we'll never know the true the true answer to that, but I'm pretty sure we got pretty close. Uh, <laughs> Do you think the security guard is her dad? Oh, that's a good maybe. Because I mean, he does seem to be very like a fatherly towards her. And there's that huh, moment where she saves his life uh, by choosing to stay with them for an extra ten seconds to calm his heart mm -hmm. down. I mean, it's not acknowledged, but his character is fascinating because. He's, I think, the only character. Wait, that sorry. The, the guy in the um, ambulance is the security guy? Yes. Oh, I didn't realize that. I somehow. think. It's not the father, I don't think. I'm pretty sure it's the it's security the guard because no, he keeps having heart attacks uh, in every scene he's in. He's about to or has a heart attack from shock. Right. At least, okay, so I, maybe I should put it not in such a definitive way. I think <laughs> it was yeah, yeah. the security guard in the ambulance. And he keeps playing the central because he seems like the only character that shows her any warmth, compassion, or interest yeah. in her life. And everything around uh, her is poisonous. It's fascinating to me um, that there's, uh, I think there's an well, undercurrent yeah. there as well. I like that. I mean, there's an interesting interpretation. I do like that. The, this movie actually put me down a Wikipedia hole because I didn't understand what he meant when he called her a cuckoo's egg. I'm like, uh, I don't know what that means. Um, so for those of you who don't know, apparently the cuckoo lays the eggs in a different bird's nest and then has that bird raise the young. Yeah. And they're, and the cuckoos are huge. Same type of thing. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Cause they're always larger, <laughs> larger than the host bird. Cause cuckoos are not yeah. small birds. And this is the thing, even when she's leaving in that first scene and it keeps being part of, I mean, uh, the two things that were really interesting in terms of uh, reliving the same moment but giving different tones is the first romantic interchange where we are uh, revealed that the biological mother's an alcoholic. So the first time mm -hmm. she runs through, you don't see anything. You just see this woman who's like, get me some extra groceries or whatever it was. And then the second time they run through it, you realize like she's sitting there drinking on the table as a bottle of whatever, whiskey or something. And then you can't Leave it. Unsee it, yeah. uh, And then the second interchange with them, and then uh, with the cuckoo's uh, egg, which I think is why my brain started trying to guess who the father is, if it's even uh, supposed to be there. Uh, and then I love the second take where the mistress is like, it's not your, I mean, you know, the irony, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There's some fascinating little, 
little twists to keep you engaged mm. in in these people. See, man. this is why I like Tom Tickfer. He does some interesting things with time and all that kind of stuff. We're done here. Well, the machine told us that we have to wrap this up. So, Dave, the time has come to rate this movie out of five. Um, if people do want to see our whole list of movies that we have been talking about, uh, currently at 34, you can go over to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash kdvstm. KDVSTM is also where you can follow us on Instagram or on Twitter. I would love it if people have their own opinions. You can actually reach us at Kyle and Dave versus the machine, Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. And as we've been mentioning at the beginning, we do have our Patreon that's available just, there as well. All this is, of course, in the show notes. Just tell us we're wrong. I dare you. Come at I us, I dare bro. you to tell us we're wrong. <laughs> Dave, what would you give Run Lola Run out of five? Mm. I'm hovering between a three and a half and a four. I think there's a lot of meat in it, but it is so dated. I mean, we didn't really ask the question whether it would hold up. And I Oh, I guess we did. Let's do that. Do you think this holds up and do you still think it's culturally relevant? Uh, I hate to say no, but it's hard to watch. If I was thinking of myself, let's say Emerson's 19, whatever age you have to be right. to watch this, does this movie make any sense to him? And I'm not sure it does. From the animation to the sort of pacing to the technological things, narratively it's really cool and there's a lot of good philosophical bones in it but i don't think this movie exists i mean hardly existed in 1999 when we look at those box <laughs> office numbers they called it you yeah. know a reasonable return but what was it like six million bucks or nine million seven million it made yeah. yeah it's i mean it hardly existed in 99 so i don't know i think i think for that reason as much as i did love it and was i was still interested in it i feel like I might have to go with like a 3.5. It sucks. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, call us. Tell us we're wrong. Well, I mean, I'll, this is where I, I'm going to come down on it. I mean, I have, um, I, I, I agree with you somewhat and I think that it, it is dated now. Like, I think that the, the bones that you mentioned, the philosophical bones are a little bit stronger, even if the filmmaking you can tell is like, this is early digital filmmaking. There's some, some shortcuts that had to be made, but I don't know. I still found myself, uh, th the thing I'll say is that I can tell that the movie is working at least for me if I don't have an urge to look at my phone. <laughs> and I very rarely had an urge to look at my phone. <laughs> I know that's a weird frame of reference, but it's like, I was totally in this for the entire time. Let, let me just counterpoint that just quickly. Yeah. It, had I theoretically watched this with Helen, I was enraptured in it. She didn't even watch the movie. She didn't give a <laughs> shit at all. And this is a movie that okay. we've watched together uh, years ago. And yeah, she was not. So we are nerds, Kyle. I'm just going to put that yeah, out there. Yeah, I guess that, that is true. Anyways, I am going to give it a four. I don't think it reaches the level of like like best movies of all time list or anything like that. But I think it's solid. I think it's a solid film. That being said, it, it averages to 3.75. That we'll have to put that down to a 3.5 because we don't round up. This means that it is tied with the movie Payback. So do you think this is a better or worse movie than the film Payback? This is tough. It's more intelligent. It's not tough for me, but... It's more intelligent, but Payback is a lot more fun to watch. So, uh, yeah, I'm a little stuck on this one. I'm going to say it's better than Payback, personally. I just think that there's more to it. Whereas Payback, I think, is, yeah, that solid... Uh, thriller. I just think that this has more to it. Although, interestingly, no, it's funny looking at these ratings. It's completely reversed. I gave a four to Run Lola Run, and you gave it a three point five. Payback. I gave it a three point five, and you gave it a four. So, <laughs> so of course we're gonna 
Be <laughs> so we're a little bit loggerheads. Um, well, let's you know, let's have a short debate about this. Uh, is are we going to rank this on lasting thematic value or watchability? So, are you going to be more likely uh, in a moment to turn on a Mel, Mel Gibson film noir, uh, you know, uh, empty? Entertainment, well, yeah. or are you gonna watch this is, Run? This Lola? is where I guess I would. I, I mean, to answer your question, I'm probably more likely to watch Run Lola Run um, in the future again. Going into the cultural relevance, and there's maybe many different outside reasons why this is the case. But Payback is not available on any streaming service, and I don't think had a Blu-ray release. Whereas Run Lola Run did have a Blu-ray release and is at least available on certain streaming platforms. Well, so there seems what? to be a desire to watch this film. Well, we can't make that argument because there's so many movies that should be streaming and just don't exist. They're in a black mm-hmm. black hole, not a white hole, but a black hole somewhere. Kyle. Right, right, right. So I mean, there there's a lot more political nuance. To well, maybe the Last Picture Show should be a better movie, Dave. Oh. I don't know. Oh damn. No. Uh, you know what though? I, uh, yeah, I, I'll put run lola run above uh because of its intelligence and its thematic i uh, think my caveat caveat um mm-hmm. said i probably would end up pressing play on uh, payback more often than i would on run lola run again i'm not sure if i would watch run lola run again yeah uh, well that makes you a monster well i sold the dvd for a reason <laughs> i guess so yeah. uh well entering our list then at the number 12 position is Run Lola Run. Dave, I guess we should find out what we're watching next week. I'm ready. Let me push this little button here. Oh, we get a little bit of a spy action. We're going to be watching The World Is Not Enough. Uh, a 007, a James Bond movie. A spy or a ham? I guess we'll find out. I guess a a spider ham, you might say. <laughs> um. All right. Well, listen, Kyle, um, why don't you uh, put down that bag and I'll give oh. you this gun and we'll just, we'll just both walk okay. out of here. At, at the same time. At the Do same it at time. the same time. Yeah. Okay. So one, two, three. Neither of us move. <laughs>